So just so you know, I had no, I had, for the life of me, I could not figure out an introduction to this sermon. And I snowblowed and snow shoveled my driveway three different times yesterday because I really like to keep it clear. I'm just weird like that. I'm OCD like that. And uh, so the last time I was out there shoveling, I just pray and I have a good time with the Lord. I get in a lot of steps on my little step counter here on my watch. So I'm happy about that. And then uh, I just had this memory that had me laughing so hard. And I know my neighbors who were driving by just thought I was a crazy cackling old, like I had lost it in the cold, right? <laughs> like the cold had finally got to me. But I was just laughing, thinking about my little boys when they were really little, Tyler, Hayden, and Logan. Uh, they used to watch this show. I think it was on the Discovery Channel or the Animal Planet or something. And it was this show about these guys who would get totally geared up to go out in the forest and look for Bigfoot. And the reason why it was so funny is because I just remember their reactions. These are little children that I have, you know, have a very good, expansive vocabulary, and they don't even realize they do because they're my children. And so they're just smart kids, and they're sitting there watching these guys out in the woods with their, like, huge dishes and headphones. And I mean to tell you, every time a twig broke or a leaf was stepped on or crushed, the guys on the show would say, did you hear that? That, that sounds like Bigfoot. <laughs> really? You can distinguish between Bigfoot and a deer or a squirrel. And my kids, just the memory of them belly laughing at these goobers out there, interpreting every single possible evidence as Bigfoot. And it just reminded me of a principle. And that is that a rational human being is warranted to ask for sufficient evidence for a truth claim. A rational human being is warranted to ask for sufficient evidence for any truth claim. If Bigfoot is out there, I need more than a few breaking twigs on your audio device. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story in which uh, the Pharisees are being very rational and they are demanding proof from Jesus. They want him to show them and tell them plainly that he is the Messiah and the Christ. And what Jesus is going to respond is this, I have given you sufficient evidence. You have sufficient signs. You have sufficient miracles. You have the sufficient evidence that would justify your belief in me. You just choose not to. You just choose not to. As we pick up the story in John chapter 10, uh, what we have to understand is that um, the chapter, though, it is going to reinforce the, the truths that Jesus has given them, that he is who he claims to be, both Messiah and Lord and King, and the great I am, as we sang about a few songs earlier. Here's what we need to understand, is that no amount of evidence is going to convict them, and there are some things that are tied to what he's saying that are tied in the background. And we have to understand the background first. So looking at John chapter 10, uh, we can look at that passage, uh, really starting in verse 22. It says, uh, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. So let's stop there. The feast of dedication at Jerusalem, it is now winter. And Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. You'll want to underline that. 
And the Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? And if you are the Christ, then just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did. I did that already. Check that box. I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name, on my Father's behalf, and in his stead, speak for me. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them or seize them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can seize them or snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Those are fighting words. Verse 31, again. So this has happened before, apparently. Uh, Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many, a variety, a plethora of great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God or make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your Torah and law? I have said you are gods. If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set, set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Uh, he says, So why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, or that is my testimony, believe the miracles, that you may learn and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but they couldn't. What's what's going on here? Where is Jesus? He's back in the temple. He, we've been in the temple a lot. I mean, John is really focused on Jesus. Remember, John chapter 2, we learned Jesus is the new temple. So John's focus has been about Jesus in the temple at these prominent Jewish feasts, trying to make the connection between the old feast and himself. So where are we? Well, what we learn in this passage, very simply, is that Jesus' cross has provided a new and better altar, and his death is going to be a new and better sacrifice. And I want to show you why that's important in their context. First of all, let's talk about the festival of Hanukkah. What is the festival of Hanukkah? You guys know Jews celebrate this every year. It's an eight-day festival. It ends on December 25th, which is the biggest and greatest day. And it was practiced that way all the way back about 150 years before Jesus' time. So it's also called the Feast of Dedication for a very important reason. I want to tell you why. So the time is in the winter. They're in the winter. And so we just came off of a story where they were in the fall. The fall festival was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus really, really lays into them. And they have this knockdown, drag out theological discussion. And Jesus has to bring some truth to them. And Jesus has healed a person on the Sabbath and the whole deal. And now we're in December. And it's winter. So it's a balmy 58. Super cold. I just can't deal with it. <laughs> right? And where is Jesus? He's walking in the colonnade. He's walking in the colonnade during the Feast of Dedication. Now, Hanukkah is a Jewish festival uh, that really was started in commemoration of the Hasmoneans uh, setting the people free from Greek rule. So back in about 167 B.C., from 167 to 160 is the great Jewish revolt under the Maccabeans. 
And you can read this whole story in First and Second Maccabees. If you have a Catholic Bible, that book, those books will actually be in there. And so you can read the whole account. And essentially what happened is, is the, the Jews were a client state of Persia. And then Greece ousted Persia, took over their territories, and left Jew, the Jews um, alone for a long time. Because they, they had other fish to fry. But as soon as one of their rulers realized that these Jewish people are still being Jewish down here and their t- with their temple and their sacrifices and their Jewish way of life, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, his name was Antiochus, but he took the name Epiphanes or Epiphanes, which means the manifest God. So he called himself the manifest God, and he was a Seleucid king or a Syrian king, and he came down and he decided he is going to rid the world of Judaism. Now, he wasn't just angry at Judaism. He didn't, it isn't that he just didn't like Judaism. He wanted the whole world to be Greek. And this is called Hellenization. The Greek word for Greek is Hellenes. And so to Hellenize the world means to Greek them. And so he was very successful at all of the surrounding territories of Israel and Judea and Jerusalem, but the Jews just held on to their faith. He did not appreciate how much they appreciated their own faith and Mosaic law and their ritual system. And so he decided, I'm going to... St-. So what he did is he began to torture them to death. The stories are gruesome. When he would cut, uh, not to get too gross here, but he would cut babies out of the womb and then hang the dead carcasses of the children around women's neck and make them parade through town like that. And so he persecuted them mercilessly so that they would convert to being Greek. And many of them did. On pain of death, many of them did. But there was a remnant who did not. There was a remnant who would not, under any circumstances, become Greek. And so what he did is he very successfully converted, on pain of death, many, many Jews to uh, the Greek way of life. This sort of cosmopolitan, in vogue Greek way of life. And it was popular around the world, but it wasn't popular here. And then he built a gymnasium right next to the temple. Now, when I say gymnasium, I don't mean like this. I don't mean like basketball hoops and a concrete floor. That's not what I mean. A gymnasium in the ancient world in in Greece was a cultural center of training. This is how you train men. And in order to enter the gymnasium, you had to go in buck naked. Buck naked. And the reason why is because they venerated the human body. They loved the perfection of the human form. And that was explicitly against Jewish law. So here you have all these Jewish men going in to this gymnasium right next to this holy, sanctified, pure, godly temple. And there's a few, there's a remnant who just won't convert. And so Antiochus Epiphanes decided, I know what to do. I'm going to desecrate that temple. And so he goes into the temple and he vandalizes it with his soldiers. They vandalize the temple, kill the priests, and then they, he gets a great idea. He decides he's going to sacrifice on their holy altar, this altar built of these massive stones, a pig, which is an unclean animal in Judaism. And so he desecrates that altar and then he abominates the temple. He abominates the temple and leaves it that way. 
And, and, and then it goes into a state of disarray. And when he takes his troops out to Modin, which is an area in Judea, they come out to Modin, and one man, one priest in Judea, when they are called to bow to the way of Greece, he says, I will not, and his name is Mattathias. And Mattathias and his sons, John, Simon, Judas, Lazarus, and Yohanathan, John, Jonathan, those five sons, they took up arms and led the people in a revolt and outnumbered five to one, they routed the Greeks and they took back their homeland. And I want to read you the story from Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 4. Here's what it says, verses 44 through 46. It says, then Judas, who was Mattathias' son, and his brothers said, now that our armies have been trodden, our enemies have been uh, crushed or trodden. Let us go up to purify the sanctuary and rededicate it. Now, this is the festival of that rededication. That's why it's called the festival of Hanukkah or the festival of dedication. Let us purify it and let us go rededicate it. Verse 38, he says, they found the sanctuary desolate, the altar abominated, the sacred gates scorched, weeds overgrown in the courts as in a thicket or a mountainside, and the priest's chambers destroyed, obliterated, Judas appointed men to attack those in the citadel while he purified the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the Torah. And these cleansed the sanctuary and carried away the stones of the defilement to a suitable place. They deliberated what ought to be done with the altar for burnt offerings that, they had, that had been desecrated. And they decided it best to dismantle it, lest it be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had abominated it with the blood of pigs. So they disassembled the altar and then they stored the stones in the, on the temple mount in the colonnade of Solomon until the coming of a prophet who could come and decide for them what ought to be done with these altar stones. Now, this was written 150 years before Jesus. So now Jesus, where is he? He's in the colonnade of Solomon. I want to show you a picture of it. You guys have that picture? Yeah, so you can see that this is a replica of the Temple Mount at that time. This is what it would have looked like 150 years before Jesus. And so you see the temple, which is in the middle, and then you see around the edge of the temple, framing the Temple Mount is what's called the portico or the colonnade of Solomon. And it was a porched area uh, where you had this roof that was held up by these Roman-style pillars. And that's where, they stole, that's where they stored the disassembled, defiled altar, the ancient altar. And this is where Jesus is walking during the Feast of Dedication. And then they find him. And this is what they say in verses 23 and 24. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long do you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They are clearly looking for another Mattathias. They clearly want another Judas or John the Hammer. That's what the word Maccabean means. It means the hammer. They want another family who will come along and say, we're the hammer and we're going to rout Rome. And Jesus comes along and here's, here's what's a fact. Jesus has no intention of restoring the ancient altar. They're hoping a prophet or a messiah or someone will come along and say, tell us what to do, how to purify and reassemble these sacred stones of the ancient altar. Tell us how to restore the past. And Jesus hasn't come to restore the past. He's come to start the future. And Jesus has come to say, now there is a better altar. I'm going to give you a new and better altar, and it is his cross. 
and I'm going to give you a new and better sacrifice, and it is himself, his broken, pierced, lashed body on a cross for the salvation of our sins. And, they, and they're just totally not on the same planet, not in the same page. So Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that they expected. And then we notice that the signs in John's gospel alone should be evidence. They should be evidence enough to convince anyone who is interested in believing, anyone who has a heart toward God. Look at verse 25. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And then what does he tell them? Remember last time I was here, I told you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them or seize them out of my hand. My Father who gives them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what Jesus is saying is, I did tell you, I already told you. Look at how I told you. John chapter two, I came and cleansed the temple and I told you I'm, I am the new temple. I am the new manifest presence of God and you did not believe that. In chapter 3, I told you that I was the spotless lamb through the prophet, John the Baptist, who gives life to the world and all who believe, whoever will believe will be saved. And you didn't believe that. In chapter 4, Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just the Messiah of Israel. He's the Messiah of the outcast, the Samaritan woman and the Roman. He's the, he's the Messiah of all. In chapter 5, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. If he wants to heal a human body, a person who's made in the image of God on the Sabbath, he's going to do it, and he's going to declare, I'm the one who gave you this law. I'm the Lord of this Sabbath. In chapter 6, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life who has come down from heaven, and all who feast on him, all who subsist on him, will have life and satisfaction for the soul. In chapter 7, Jesus is the water of life who springs Fourth, within a man, a believer, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the light of the world who alone illuminates the way to the new and better kingdom. And Jesus is the restorer in chapter 9 of the sight to the blind. And he's also the blinder of those who say they can see. And in John chapter 10, again last week, he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd king of Israel. And I've come to care for, lead, and save my sheep who listen to my voice and who know me. And so all along the way, every saying, every sign, Jesus wants to say, what I've provided for you is sufficient. You should be able to believe. But what's the problem? Is your chronic doubt is just never going to cut it. Nothing is ever going to be enough for you. Uh, infamous atheist Richard Dawkins was asked in an interview, what if you die and you meet God? <laughs> You've denied him your entire life. What if, you, what if you die and you actually see him and you actually meet him? And his response was, I will say with Bertrand Russell, still not enough evidence, sir. Now that is not an evidence problem. That is, evidence, that is not an evidence problem. That is a heart problem. That is a person who has just decided, <clears throat> I am going to harden my heart and I am not going to believe. And so for a person like that, no amount of evidence, no amount of evidence you could possibly give them will ever change the heart because the heart just doesn't want to believe. It doesn't see. It's blind. It's dead. It's deaf. 
And then we learn that Jesus is God's unique son, evidenced by the superior quality of his works. Look at what he says. So now he's going to really get their goat, right? He's really going to rile them up. Verse 30, I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work that you've done, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's their problem. They do not understand. They have it exactly in reverse. Jesus is not a mere man making himself God. Jesus is God who has made himself a man. And they have misunderstood what he's all about. And Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law. So then he goes into this Psalm 82 passage about the fact that in the Old Testament, it calls people God's. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Why would you have a problem? He says, if I refer to myself as the Son of God, since you can see the works that I am doing. So in what sense is Jesus one with the Father? Firstly, Jesus was truly divine. Jesus was truly divine. So what is God? What is God? Well, the definition of God is that God is the maximally greatest possible being. So if you could conceive of a being that is greater than that, that would be God. God is the maximally greatest conceivable being. Okay? So God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. So all of the attributes that are true about God being the infinite personal creator of the universe, those same attributes are true about the Son. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, in this context, in John's context, it means we are one in essence. We are one as to our nature. Distinct in person, one in nature. And Paul points this out. There are many, many passages that I could give you in support of this. And I'll be happy to later if you want more. But here's what Paul says in Colossians 2, 8, 9. I think this one is, just encapsulates it. And his concern for them. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What dwells in tabernacles in bodily form is all of the attributes of the infinite personal creator God. So all of the fullness of the Godhead lives, dwells, tabernacles in this person. And notice Paul's concern. Paul's concern is this. I don't want any of you to be held captive. I don't want you to be held in a prison of wrong, false thinking, especially when it comes to Jesus. I want you to know exactly who he is. He is the living embodiment of all that God is. So Paul is careful to warn them, and Paul is careful to call them to belief. Now, notice the Pharisees' response. How do they respond to this statement? Yeah, they want to leave him under a pile of rocks. They want to leave him under a pile of stones, because in Leviticus, this is precisely what it commands for anyone who blasphemes. Even a lower blasphemy, uh, or worshiping a false idol could lead to being stoned. But Jesus is, has a far higher, far grander claim than that. Now, notice that Jesus does not correct them and say, now, wait a minute, that's not what I'm saying. He doesn't say that. He doesn't censure them for their misunderstanding. He simply says, okay, yeah, that would be true. You would be justified in doing that if it wasn't the case that I am God's one and only son. So their response is the right response if this is not true. So Jesus was truly divine. That is the consistent witness of John and the scriptures. 
Uh, let's talk about some errant views of Christ's divinity. Time for a little systematic theology. We're just going to take a quick systematic theology break, and then we'll get back to John, okay? So I want to talk about some errant views of Christ's divinity. These are historically errant views, and you and I need to know them because we need to, one, not believe them, but we also need to know how to respond to them. And the first one is what we call adoptionism. Adoptionism was one of the first things that Christians had to deal with, and it was this idea that Jesus was just sort of this belief that he was a a mere human being, but later adopted as God's son and given a sort of divine ministry or divine vocation. That came from Theodotus of Byzantium. So um, that was AD 190. And then we also have Arianism. Arianism, uh, many of you know, is a false belief system. It's the belief that Jesus is a lesser God, or he's a created being, and that sometime in the finite past he came into being, or God actually created him. And so this denies Jesus' essential deity. It would deny what Jesus has to say about himself and the Father being one as to their nature. This would deny that. And so Jesus would be just another part of creation. So there, you couldn't say in the beginning was the word and that in the beginning the word was God because before beginning began the word was God, you know, was with God because he was God. You couldn't say that because if uh, Arianism is true. And then we have the heresy of Docetism, which is the belief that Jesus' physical body was just an illusion. This is the idea that he was fully God But when he appeared in human form, that was just illusory. So his crucifixion wasn't a real human death. His bodily resurrection wasn't really bodily. And the reason why this is a heresy is because the scripture says anyone who denies that he has not come in the flesh is anathema, right? So we believe that he is fully God and fully human simultaneously. So docetism is that belief. And then we have also Sabellianism, which was a response to those beliefs. Sabellianism is the heresy or the belief that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three separate manifestations of God. So you have this one God, they got that right. You have Christ who is fully deity, they got that right. But Christ is just God putting on another hat. It's just God putting on another costume. It's just another expression or mode of God. But this was false as well. This would make nonsense of the statements in Scripture where Jesus appears to be talking about the Father as if he is a distinct person and the Spirit as well. And then lastly, you have canonic theology. Canonic theology was something they dealt with in the medieval period. It's actually, weirdly, become resurgent in the teaching of Bill Johnson in Redding, California today. And is the belief that Christ gave up or divested himself of certain divine attributes in his incarnation. And they base this on Paul's metaphorical use of the term kenosis, which means to empty in Philippians 2.7. And here's that phrase. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. But they've misunderstood the context. The context of Philippians 2 is not of what attribute did Christ empty himself. The context is into what did Christ empty himself. In other words, what did all of God pour himself into? He poured himself into all of a man. And he poured himself into the form of a man, and not just a man, a servant. And not just a servant, a criminal. A person who was tried as a criminal who died for our sins. So he is fully God, truly God, and truly man simultaneously. And that's the teaching of Scripture. 
And that leads us, of course, to the Trinitarian teaching, which is there is one God eternally existent in three distinct persons. So those are errant views of Jesus' deity. But what about an errant view of our nature? Jesus brings up this issue. He quotes Psalm chapter 82. What does it mean for men to be gods in the sense that Jesus used this term? So now back to the text. What you need to know is that men are fallen image bearers. The Old Testament word for gods is the word Elohim, and it is used in a variety of ways. It can apply to angels. It can apply to earthly judges. It can apply in a variety of ways. Most of all, it's used of God himself. When God says in Isaiah 42, I am God and there is no other, he uses the word Elohim. Okay? So, now, what we need to know about the Jewish view of a human being is this. They're image bearers. And I want to show you in uh, Genesis 1.26 what the scripture says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. So that word for God is Elohim. And he says, let us, the counsel of the Godhead says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And notice the key feature of that. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the, uh, in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So what do we learn about an image-bearing man in Genesis? Well, we learned that they receive the breath of God's life in the moment of their creation or their birth. We note that they have a representative role to play in God's ecosystem, in God's world, in his kingdom. We note that they are uh, given his image and then told to reign over the world all of the creatures of the world. And then through the fall into sin, that nature for ruling and having dominion over has become totally corrupted. And we see that writ large in the news every single day. So the word Elohim, as it refers to a human being, refers to just that, his representative role. His representative role, very narrowly, in ruling over creation, ruling over a nation. I want to show you this. It's applied to judges and rulers in Israel in Exodus 22, 7 through 8. It says, if anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must uh, pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges. The word judges is the word Elohim. And they must determine whether or not the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. The word Elohim is also narrowly used as people when they are human rulers. Note this, Ezekiel 28. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, or the the, uh, God of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I said in the seats of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man, not a God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, Will you still say, I am a God, even in the presence of your slayer? I just think that's an interesting question. (laughs) I think that's interesting. God is saying, I'm going to slay you, and will you still maintain that you're a God? And though you are a man and not a God in the hands of those who wound you, what is God saying here? So this word Elohim is used in reference to a person who has uh, the leader of Tyre, the ruler over Tyre, who has uh, the role of representative rule. And again, the word Elohim is used narrowly of people in uh, Exodus 4.16. Notice how God uses this as a leader and a representative spokesman. Moreover, it says, he shall speak for you to the people. And will, he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be 
uh, as God to him. Now, who's he talking to here? Moses, and who's he talking about? Aaron. So Aaron is going to be like his prophet. And then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your, pre- your prophet. So what is God saying? You, you'll be called God in the sense that you'll be my representative spokesman to darkness. That's what he's saying. So you see here, in the Old Testament, that word Elohim for God is only used of human beings in a very narrow sense of proxy leadership. Representing God's reign and God's rule to the nations, or God's reign over the people. And now we come to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is about exactly that. God is talking to a ruler, or the rulers of the nations. And he said, I said, you are God's. You're all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Notice the ruling context of that statement. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is not using this exegetically. He's using this polemically. He's pulling this out of the Old Testament in Psalm 82 to say this. He says, in that context, God has allowed people to be called gods in the limited sense of their proxy or representative rule to the nations. And then God says, nope, you're going to die like a man. You're going to die like a mere mortal. So if, if the one and only God, the true God of the universe, refers to his image bearers in a narrow way as gods, and he thinks that's appropriate, Jesus' argument is this, how much more would that be true to call myself the son of God since I'm the one the Father sent from eternity? I'm the one he sent from eternity past and set apart for this work of atonement. And here's the conclusion. I want to read it to you. It's right here. John 10. They tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan uh, to the place uh, where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in him. You see the pattern. The pattern is that Jesus is winning. The pattern is that Jesus is winning the debate. He's winning the argument. And more and more disciples are coming to him saying, yes, yes, I can buy that. I can believe that. And the Pharisees cannot take any more. But honestly, this is nothing compared to next week, which you don't want to miss. Now, you and I have a choice to make today. Some things are hard to hear from Jesus. when he makes these high and lofty claims of himself. But it's either true or it's not true. I'll tell you a story, uh, close with a story. When I was a younger guy in my early 20s, I used to lead a youth group, and I was the youth pastor, and I would take them to uh, Spokane from the Tri-Cities, Washington, up to a camping spot in Spokane, and right there by the Spokane River, man, we used to boat and fish and play and just have fun at that camping site. It's a beautiful place. Uh, One of my students, his name was Bobby, Bobby went down one day. It was, in fact, it was the first day we got there, and it was pretty hot. It was pretty warm that day. So he goes down and finds a bunch of clay right there on the shore. It begins to ball it up and mash it around. He did it for like an hour. And then he formed a little tray or a little, what looked like to me, an ashtray. But he formed a little bowl and he set it out on a rock. And the next day when we woke up, it was totally hardened. 
And it was time for devotions. And of course, I had not planned anything. <laughs> I was just going to read him some scripture. We were going to go boating. <laughs> so I grabbed that bowl and it was totally hard. It had hardened in the sun. And I went into the trailer and I got a little bowl of butter and I melted in the microwave the bowl of butter. And I brought it out and I said to the kids, I said, you see, although it was done in the microwave, uh, I played it off as it had been done in the sun. I said, you see, the same sun that hardens the clay melts butter. And so it's really up to you whether or not your heart is going to warm and melt under the rays of Jesus' truth or whether it's going to harden. And the Pharisees chose to harden their hearts. And this morning, you and I can choose to warm to it. This morning, you and I can come and receive him for who he is and be his sheep. Will you, will you pray with me? God, we just want to thank you this morning uh, for your word, which is life-giving and Father, if there's anyone here this morning who just hasn't made that step and their hearts are hard and you're knocking on the door, will you soften them now? Will you help them warm to the rays of your truth? And if you're here this morning and you just want to respond and you say, yes, I, I, just, I, want, to, I want to believe in Jesus and his words make sense to me and God himself is the evidence that I need. Would you just in your heart commit your life to Jesus? And you may be here and you may be struggling with doubts. And I want to tell you, that's really perfectly normal and natural. Would you just give those over to the Lord right now? Uh, Lord, we just give our in times when we uh, are struggling, struggling to believe, struggling to hold on, struggling to have hope. And Lord, we just want to give you our hearts fully and completely, even when we don't understand everything, even when we don't understand all that you have to teach us, will you help us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.